Three, two, one. Hey everybody, welcome to the ESVU podcast number 37. Today we have a very special guest and uh, our special guest is Loremaster Michael Zink. If I mispronounced your last name, sorry about that. No, it's alright, yeah, yeah. it's a Zenki. Zenki, like Zenki, like okay. A, yeah, like all I'm right. a very chill thing you open the door with. <laughs> okay. That's, that's my vibe. Alright, and joining me as always is Olibo, and this time we also have two additional guests, um, our kind of own ESOU lore experts, Anonnex and Audens. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Alright, so pretty exciting, because I have, well, I have some, I have a couple burning lore questions, I'm sure Audens and uh, Cenex also has questions too, and Ali apparently doesn't know anything about the Elder Scrolls lore. I don't think I've ever read a quest in my life. Okay. But... I'm willing to learn. I'm excited. <laughs> All right, um, but yeah, let's let's uh, let's start off. Actually, um, could you, Michael? Could, could you introduce yourself and what your job is for those of you for for, for those people who don't know exactly what Lord Master is and who who you are and what you've done? Uh, absolutely. Um, so I am Lord Master for Elder Trolls Online, specifically uh, within the organization. Um, I kind of liken myself to like a bard. I'm a, I'm the ultimate support class when quest designers or artists or animators or whatever have a question about this like big sprawling complicated ip that we all work on um i'm a resource that can tap to help kind of give them context for all the stuff that's out there so far i'm in a lot of meetings um talking to folks about you know upcoming plans and like stuff we're gonna make um and i try to make myself available for any question no matter like kind of how obscure or wacky is out there um it's it's a it's a very interesting job i don't like have like a set day every day i i show up to work it's a little different um and i'm focused on on slightly different things but i've been a writer in the games industry for over a decade now um worked on franchises like uh destiny and uh, ghost of tsushima and so this is like an interesting evolution of my long and sort of weird journey in the games industry so i did not know you worked on uh ghost of tsushima that's pretty cool yeah i've enjoyed that yeah, game man. a lot it's a great game yeah it is um let's see do you guys have any questions about anything michael's said uh, not really not myself um, i think it's that. interesting that you worked on destiny because in the very latest expansion necrom i see a little bit of destiny especially in the deeper lore side in um apocrypha especially yeah definitely it's, it's, they're both franchises with like big sprawling narratives right it's it's fun mm. stuff i mean how do you keep all that encyclopedic knowledge like do you do you have to research things like oh. you must be right absolutely i do not like it, um, I believe Lawrence Schick back in the day played a game of uh, Stump the Lore Master, and I don't, <laughs> I don't think I would sign myself up for something like that. I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge of of the, the the franchise. The way that I sort of frame it more is like I have a really like sort of vigorous knowledge of like the hot steamy like forty percent that like comes up quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um and then i know about like the hot button stuff that is like we should talk about that like we have those kinds of conversations right like um a lot of time just like with any sort of writing job in the games industry it's about problem solving right i'm i'm in the room to help people solve narrative related problems 
Um, and so like a lot of the reps I've done in the industry previously, a lot of the like types of work I've done on other products and even on Elder Scrolls Online the first time I was here, like that um, experience really helps with having the kinds of conversations I have in my day-to-day -day job. Oh, you mentioned... I would imagine... Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Now. No, go on, go on, please. Oh, I would imagine with how centric the game, the series is to the lore, practically everything must come to your desk at some point, doesn't it? Um, you know, I guess in a way, um, I'm very much, um, I am a, like I said, I'm, I'm a resource more than like a decision maker, generally speaking. Like, sometimes I have... I call it being fun police. Sometimes I do have to be fun police and, and be like, hey, there's there's stuff that we probably, avenues of, of approach that we usually shouldn't, um, that we shouldn't try to like explore. But every time that that kind of a conversation comes up, what I try to do is I'm like, how can we maintain the core element of what you're excited about? How can we maintain the idea that you're passionate about and transition it into a, a space that's like more fruitful, right? That's That's a lot of the conversations that we have. Yeah, from what I recall, in Vegas, we talked a little about a little bit about that and how difficult it could be, for sure. Also, to manage you know people's expectations, probably right in terms of oh learning. sure, but but one of the fun parts of working at Zoss is like I work with a bunch of really talented, like pretty pretty smart people. Um, so like generally speaking, by the time um, I start to have conversations with folks about like a piece of content or like a um, maybe like a product we're gonna do, like the the, a lot of times they've done all the work up front. Like they know what the lore is, they know what to plug into, mm -hmm. and it's just like, hey, I just want to get your like sense of, like, are there opportunities here that we need to, we should explore? Like that's that's another type of conversation I have quite a bit. Because yeah, every I, I am, I I want to make it very clear, I am not like the only guy in the building that cares about lore. Quite the right. opposite. Like everybody who works on Elder Scrolls Online is like hugely into the lore, like really invested. Uh, it's a it's a really pleasant place to be in because whenever we have conversations about the lore i kind of know up front that people are bought into that conversation before it even kicks off the ground which is great do, do you get like any um special things as a lore master like do people call you lore master or do they call you by your name <laughs> <laughs> i'm I mean, always kind of curious hey generally people master. call me zanky okay, okay. Uh, uh, thankfully um uh, I make the joke right. If if you if your mom names you Michael, then she names you anything but Michael. Um, so usually people just call me Sankey. Um, anytime people are like, "Ah, oh, it's the lore master," it's usually they're usually trying to trying to get a rise out of me. Mm. So it's like, "Ah, uh, yes, let's 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 invoke the lore master. And see what the old idiot in the corner has to say." <laughs> right? like, it's yeah no 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 um it's it's great it's it's it you know, sort of like you were referring to i get to be a fly on a lot of walls which is which is an interesting place to be in i guess it's an interesting dichotomy though right like you're in the technological aspects of creating a video game but then you have this archaic title of war master it's, it's very unique i don't think there's a lot of titles like there out there on linkedin or whatever um yeah. <laughs> I kind of the the role in a way um, the way I've tried to explain it to other people when I talk about it like to people that don't know what I do generally is there's a role in the games industry called like principal writer which is mm. sort of like senior writer plus plus essentially and that's kind of what I do um, where I um, I like tank 
the Arcanist is a great example, right? Like I tanked the narrative stuff for that um, for a class, right? And I've been doing this a while. Like I've, I've you know, I've I've got a lot of like you we talked about. I got a lot of sort of knowledge of the the setting, and so like I was sort of an appropriate person to help shepherd that along. So that's the kind of stuff that I do, in a nutshell. Okay. We were doing some uh, research prior, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started working at Zoss in 2011? That sounds about right, yeah. So you were there pretty much for a lot of the initial conceptual stuff. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't quite say it that way. The game was pretty far along by the time that I got there, but for reference, the game was not a fully voiced game by the time that I joined the project uh we we transitioned to vo after i joined the project so oh. yeah so did you join when the when those the uh, more cartoony wow graphics were still happening or was it after that i would say it was sort of uh as as that was transitioning out yeah cool uh and we kind of touched on this already um the elder scrolls as an ip is nearly like three decades old now which makes me feel old. <laughs> uh what's it like helping to shape such a well-respected and dearly beloved setting uh there is a lot okay. uh there's a lot to it um the biggest thing that i try to do when i think about how much water there's been under the bridge is just to try to look at um opportunities right because there's a way of looking at you know like you said 30 years right it's like it can be intimidating but i think what the way that the Bethesda and Zoss have, have we've set ourselves up for success is by grounding a lot of stuff inside um, what we call the unreliable narrator. It's a it's a mm. narrative like construct that I think we talk about a lot when we we do interviews and stuff. But basically, what it means, right, is um, the only things that the player experiences as canon, the only things that I would say abstractly are canon, are the things that the player sees and does in the game right so when you played skyrim you know you you kill parthenax that's that's canon right um when you play eso right if you um played through the high isle expansion right you fought against the ascendant lord like that's mm. real that's about as real as it gets in in elder scrolls lore everything else and i mean almost everything okay is something that someone says to you right out loud or you read when someone has written that down and as we all know from the real world right like people have points of view people right. people lie people say things that they think are true right that they believe are true but aren't and so that conceit is like super powerful because it lets us some people might see it as like like a free check for retconning but i think it's much more about like trying to look at the heart of what exists in the lore and find opportunities to tell new and interesting stories based on on what's out there, right? Like, Necrom's going to be a great example. Um, the city itself is something that's been in an, in an Elder Scrolls game before, but I would say maybe not in a lot of detail, right? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Apocrypha obviously has been uh, for uh, at the forefront of an Elder Scrolls release before, but we're taking a very different. We're like kind of moving the frame, right? Like a considerable like 45 degrees to the left and like looking at a different part of Apocrypha, a different setting of Apocrypha. And then you look at something like whole cloth new, the Arcanist, like I really wanted to pull on 
almost our own lore, like Elder Scrolls Online's lore, from how we presented the other classes, right? The other classes, and I've said this in a bunch of like Lore Masters archives now with other people's voices, but like I see a, um, Elder Scrolls Online classes as like different types of magic that we as people kind of like put a bounding box around so that we can like self-identify in some fashion, right? right? So an arcanist is just a particular type of like magic using person. Right, that's that's really like the really reductionist way to describe it, um, but that that draws from a ton of stuff from out in the lore and things we've said previously in both ESO and other Elder Scrolls games, and so it's all about new opportunities, right? Like uh, Necrom itself, Apocrypha as a setting, the Arcanist. It's all taking older stuff and finding new ways to mix and match and provide new context, new things that people could say to you that might or might not be true. Okay, I I really do enjoy the fact that you brought up the uh, whole thing about the unreliable narrative, or at least uh, people's perceptions affecting, I guess, your view of what may have happened, because it does happen in real life a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So I work I work in the field of history, and what we often have to do is usually when we go through firsthand accounts of what the events transpired as or um, what they write about, we have to also look at why they wrote those things right. or why they said those things and when and uh, uh and how that actually gives us an understanding of what was going on rather than just taking that face value right right and i really enjoy that and i think it's kind of related to a common complaint that's brought up uh i, th I think it also was brought up during vegas by someone um during the q a that something about map inaccuracies and I think it was brought up when Imperial City DLC came out, like, oh, the map is rotated 45 degrees off. And uh, I really like, uh, as much as maybe some people might think it's a cop-out, I, I do really like the answer that maps are um, unreliable as well, right? Absolutely, and right? And it's like, also true in history. Like, maps are very um, unreliable or just based on politics or, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. And yeah. Yeah, it makes it feel more alive, at least to me. Yeah, anytime you look at a map, right, the, um, especially like uh, something that shows like a political boundary, like that wasn't made for you. That was made for someone else, right? That right. was made for someone else's benefit. And so like I completely, and I want to frame this as like, I don't want to ever come off as I'm like, eh, the, the stuff you guys are complaining <laughs> about, is the, it doesn't matter to me. Of course it matters to me. Like I take that stuff seriously. Um, I just want to, you know, give the frame for how we like look at this stuff, right? When, when people... Um, very rightly so, had like, hey, the last map we have of this part of the, the continent, right, when we're talking about the Telvanani Peninsula, there's some pretty clearly defined political boundaries here. You guys don't seem to be talking about that or respecting that or anything like that. I want to make sure that people understand like why that we're taking that approach. And, and, and it's not just like an arbitrary decision. Mm -hmm. It's something that we thought about and we, we applied sort of a methodology, like a framework to that, that structure and that space. So, yeah. So you said um, a little earlier that, like, you uh, dismissed it. It's like an opportunity for retcon, right? Like, and while I do think that's kind of silly to say, oh, they they just keep it unreliable so they can change everything. Um, I personally think that this is actually an interesting thing to be able to do. Like, a lot of the lore is not completely set in stone, right? So you could say one thing; it seems mostly established, and then later on down the line, you could say. But this would also be cool, you know, like maybe it, 
would be more interesting if it was this and either could be true like um an example would be the whole jungle Cyrodiil thing that people are still mad about um there are several explanations offered and they're right. all cool and but it could be any one of them depending on who you're asking right um and uh, yeah i any anytime it comes down to like a person you know you obviously were you were describing right like when you when you write down your experience um people are very fallible and so the um the the way the the things they choose to write down and the reasons they they write them down and how they frame the experiences they had it it nets out a lot in the historical record right it's it's one of the things i love about elder cross as a franchise i'm also definitely not professionally but i'm a big i'm a big fan of history i'm a man of a certain age now right so like i listen to to dan carlin quite a bit Mm -hmm. hardcore history right so like uh the thing that i love about his approach is he takes a very sort of um, people-focused um, viewpoint. What is the experience of people in these moments in history? How did they live? What was their lived experience as they they beheld history unfolding before them? And that is very, I think, very similar to our experience as players in an Elder Scrolls game, right? Like when we step foot in Skyrim during the time of of the dragon attacks, right? Like we're seeing history play out in front of us. We get to in because it's a video game, we get to like influence how it plays out. Like that's one of the really exciting parts of um, Elder Scrolls games in general, I think. And that's one of the things I love about how the lore interacts with the gameplay. It's great. I remember uh, the lead designer for Morrowind, uh, Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind, Ken Rolson once said that there's the king story, there's the farmer story, and then there's the dog story. And he's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I wonder like when you guys write lines these stories, uh, do you guys create like the king story, the farmer story, then dog story, and then decide you pick parts of it and then decide to publish those in the game? That's a great question. Um, kind of. Um, the way that we definitely approach things, and I think we've talked about this sort of in other venues too, is like. Um, we we come up with a big kind of overarching pitch, right, for whatever the release is going to be, and then we drill down from there in terms of like what the we call it the main quest, right? The, what the main quest is going to be. So we're in High Isle, right? It's the it's the it's the fight against the Ascendant Lord and that that experience. Below that, like underneath that, there's a huge um, possibility space, right? For for what is the farmer's experience? What's the dog's experience? What's the uh weird fawn experience what's the experience of the kajidi spy right like the game as a setting is so open-ended that we could almost do anything it's like it's a good problem to have right so when we define the main quest when we define the place we're going to go like geographically within a release um it really helps us to drill in on what what those like kind of more nitty gritty stories are going to be a lot of times what we do is we try to like narratively prop up any sort of like core notions we have in the main quest um maybe there's like a a fun throwaway concept that we want to hit in the main quest that we don't have time in that storyline to really flesh out so that might end up being its own objective right we we might end up um shifting that off to be its own stand-up story with its own characters like associated with it. Or maybe a character from the main quest goes off and has like a side adventure. Um, as you guys have seen over the many releases of Elder Scrolls Online, we've tried to shift how the main 
quest interacts with the world and the, the space and the zone. And, you know, all the time we're, we're having those conversations of like, how should we, um, how should we line up this story, you know, in terms of beginning, middle and end? Because, you know, back, you go all the way back to launch, right? We literally did a story that started, you know, say at the beginning of Kunarthi's Roost and ended at the end of Reaper's March, right? Right. Um, and then you, everybody went off to Cold Harbor. That's not really what we do anymore. We do, we try to do things in a bunch of different ways. And so just like we frame that narrative structure for the main quest specific to the release, um, I think we do the same thing with like the, say, the farmer story, the dog story. What makes sense? What's like a really interesting nugget from this region or this culture to rise to the top and give them their own space, right? I I think my favorite thing that we've done sort of recently on that is like the island of Aminos, which is like such a weird microculture in like the broader tapestry of Tamriel. Mm. And th- we I think we got to tell some really interesting stories about that that tiny little island and it's like weird population and how it interacts with especially history like talk about like a weird historical artifact like amnos is great for that kind of stuff sure i think that is for me personally one of the more appealing sides of elder scrolls um that it reflects the real world so much and that you have these microcosms of cultures that connect to greater cultures and it just branches out, and then you can. It, it feels very organic, right. the whole setting. I imagine that takes a lot of planning on your guys' parts to make it all work together. Uh, it does, but again, um, everybody in the building, right, is like very passionate about this stuff, and so a lot of times, um, intentionally, like when when the story for a zone is just one page, a lot of that stuff is sort of not not explored in that page on purpose because. Leadership knows folks like Bill Slavisek, Rich Lambert, Jeremy Sarah. They know that the designers and writers on the team are just going to like get in there and get really psyched up and find the the incredible like opportunities um, that that exist within a zone's framework. Um, uh, yeah, that that's that's kind of how how the we approach it. I think that's not to get off topic or go on a tangent, but. Uh... Earlier, you brought up Kajidi Spine. I just wanted to get this out of the way. But mm. is it true that you were the one who designed and brought to life Razumdar? Well, again, uh, I am just one guy. Um, I was the first writer to sort of coalesce Raz as a character. But um, as happens with every character in Elder Scrolls and pretty much every video game you're ever going to play, mm. um, Raz is a bunch of people, right? Like, he was... Um, the designers that were working with me on the All of Mary Dominion, um, uh, incredible group of people. And then over time, even before we shipped, Raz was, I always think of characters as being able to solve problems for writers. Like that's, I mean this in the most kindest, like nicest way. I, I hope other writers who hear me say this, <laughs> like on some level agree with this, but characters are tools, right? Mm. Characters are um, a unit within the narrative that allows us to solve problems. And so Raz solved a bunch of problems for me. And then it turned out that for people like um, Zach Bush and Tracy Seamster and Rebecca Harwick, who are the other writers on the All Married Dominion, Raz was very useful for them as well. And so he ended up showing up in a couple of other pieces of content. People liked him in the building. He ended up in more content. Like, that's kind of how that 
that kicked off. So, so yes, I was the first writer to write Raz because I don't know. I wanted to write a spy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was, I, I'm pretty sure I pulled him up for right off the bat in vocal guard when you're dealing with the queen. Um, and, and that whole non, it's where we're, we're picking the veiled inheritance up narrative up for the first time. Um, having a spy on hand to do stuff was like super useful. Um, and then he ended up, you know, being kind of a multi-tool. And then he ended I make the joke, I was working with another company when the Somerset cinematic dropped. I sat there and I watched it and it was awesome. And I was like, oh man, my my boy has a more successful career than I do now. This is amazing. Look at him. <laughs> Look at how great he looks. My beautiful red hair boy. So yeah, um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I think that's a wonderful segue, actually, into a uh, question. Can I ask the next one, Nephis? Uh, oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah, go for, go for it. Sure. Fourth question. Okay, so um, I promise this is relevant, but I love Imperials. I love Imperial lore. I know that's like mm. normie. They're humans. It's fantasy. But um, one of my absolute favorite things in ESO was the reveal and scalebreaker of Chevalier Renaud. A character who was mentioned yes. like literally two times ever. So, our question is: How do you like? What's the process like of getting these little pinpricks of lore, like these little nuggets that fascinate people, and spinning them out into the their whole concept into the game? So, in that particular case, I did literally just look look them up. So I so I make sure I'm not talking on my butt. Like this is a great example of where there's a bunch of like pieces lying around on the table, right? And we take this thing and we take this thing and we put them together and make you know delicious make delicious peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like that's that that is an approach that I have found super successful. Um, in particular, I work a lot with the um, the folks that work in the Crown Store, and that's been like a lot of fun trying to find you know you call it like blue ocean and and like tech stuff, right? Like what's the what's the untapped potential? What's what's a place that people haven't gone to before? Um, narratively, same thing, right? Like how can we find um, something that we've mentioned in an offhand way? Um, combine it with something else we've mentioned in an offhand way and spin out something like lovely and wonderful and new. It's it's actually the, the best example I can give for you right now that's sort of contemporary to our conversation is uh, the Telvani in this release that's so heavy on Apocrypha, right? Like, um, I think we talked about it in Vegas, but um, Mora and the Telvani and all of that being in the narrative was all secondary. It was all um, a knock-on effect of the core like pitch that leadership like coalesced around like what if there was a secret so dangerous it could unmake reality um and because of the telvani's role as secret keepers within sort of um mortal ken and uh apocrypha's role in the daedric realms as like the heart of all secrets and hermaeus mora as his you know tentacular role as you know um daedric prince of secrets like bam 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 right like just down the line and now you have this beautiful new like melange of of characters and settings and opportunities that has never existed in the lore before but all come together from that one point right from that one sort of fixed thing um that's what makes eso lore so great is like 
I can throw a rock and hit a good idea, right? Like, hey, we we want to tell this kind of story. Oh, here, here's like four different ways that we could tell that story based on the stuff we've already got out there. Um, it's a it's sometimes a hard job, right? Because it's a job. But man, it is a job that I really enjoy. I'll be really honest with you. Because there's just so many opportunities um, out there to do stuff like this. So it's a great question and a great framing, right? Like from a pinprick of a single idea, uh, a dark secret, an incredible secret. We have all this material, all this these characters and settings that we can pull from that one core nugget and bring it into something else. I will say, though, from a, a lore nerd's perspective, when you guys do these things, when you take those small, almost insignificant bits of lore and just spin full narratives out of them, like it excites the hell out of us. I remember uh, when elsewhere in 2019, elsewhere was dropping and the Wrathstone came out. And then there was a bunch of us on RTS lore, and we're like, oh, that's from Arena. The the tablet that you need to find the Halls of Colossus, it was from Arena. And we lost our minds over it. Like, a lot of us actually went back to Arena. Like, we tried to find our floppy disks or uh, look, uh, get some sort of emulator on our computers to, for Windows 95 to replay it, to re-experience it all. And it, it's amazing. And uh, like uh, Auden just brought up, when Chevalier Renault, again, in that same year came out, for those of us obsessed with the Talos myth, um, it was mind-blowing. And I just want to say, like, we appreciate it so much that you guys do this and just blow it out and just paint these amazing narratives for us to enjoy. And so I want to say real quick, um, the when the Dread Seller came out and the main NPC was a battle mage from the Battle Spire, I was over the moon. I thank you so much at Zenimax for doing that. I feel like it was for me. I love, I love Battlespire so much. I have a question. How, how, does your computer even handle floppy disks? <laughs> that's that's like the first no. thing I was thinking. <laughs> no, like, but like I went, to, I went disk. to find them. I remember just out of sheer nostalgia, oh, okay. I went to go find them. I didn't realize the Wrathstone was in the previous game. That's pretty cool. So I it was. Game too. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And what's I the, love when arena stuff comes up. It's so great. And what's like the, a Thervacoon yeah, coming out of nowhere in uh, 2016, 2017. Wait, Thervacoon was also a thing? Yep, Celine was also from Arena. Yep. Celine? Yep. Celine was in Arena. She was featured in Arena. I did not know this as well. Okay. They, uh, like um, Fangler, Arena. Fangler was actually mentioned, I remember, uh, in the King Edward novels. And it was just, there's so much that they do, like you guys do. That just flashes out like these from things from like again like almost thirty years old now, and it's it's phenomenal to see that you just continue to breathe new life into it, and just write these amazing narratives. What's it's the... great fodder. Yeah, and what's the deal with Renault? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking for me and Ollie because we're like, Ugh. okay, so Chevalier Renault is uh -huh. um, he's his first mention I believe is in Rimanada which is a text that describes the birth and ascension of Remit Zeridil. Okay. Um, so it he's mentioned at the end as it's implied that he's a Seichi um, from Akavir, <gasps> but um, he is mentioned in the, the second chapter as a key figure in the um, later ascension of Talos. It's like a sort of a bridge between Remit and Talos, two great emperors, right? Okay. Um, so he's been around and, for a long time. Yes, he's been around oh, okay. for, I think, since 
Mr. Michael Kirkride wrote Rima Nada in, in 2008 or 2009. Yes. When, uh, That's pretty cool. When the, what was it? It was the uh, Nights of the Nine. Nights of, Nights of the Nine DLC. Yeah. Yes. And he showed up in Scalebreaker, which I'm sure you and Ollie both know, as the yeah. quest giver in the one with the gargoyle. And the vampire. I don't the name of. Yeah. No, it was, yeah, and uh, his vampire buddy. Moongrafane. Uh, Moongrafane. Yes, Moongrafane. Um, which, by the way, fantastic is, dungeon. So it is also implied further through that quest, but not confirmed, which I love, that he is and always was a Seichi immortal shapeshifter guy huh and it was just amazing to see him okay like as an actual physical figure from like someone who's so understated but so important interesting characters characters that have been around since the first era right characters that have been around like for a very long time they're a really unique opportunity right because you can have them put a voice but again right through that unreliable narrator filter right like everything that he says everything that comes out of his mouth is just like his opinion man you know so like while theoretically he does have like this treasure trove of lore from you know potentially many many years of history the the filter through which you experience him the stuff that he says right right? like everything is with that bias everything is from a point of view and so while you know he's a great character right and he like it's an opportunity it's a great opportunity it i also love it because it doesn't down the line for us or Bethesda or anyone else making stories in, in the electrical franchise, having characters like that show up doesn't necessarily bind our hands to do things to counteract the things that he says because of that, that framework, right? It's, mm. it's getting, it's a little bit of getting your cake and getting, to, having your cake and getting to eat it too. It's, mm. it's lovely. In, in terms of what you were saying earlier about just throwing a rock and it hitting something good, no matter what, is, is that something, something like that happened as well for Necrom the process? Of bringing these little pin, like pinpricks of lore, absolutely right. Like uh, like I said, Necrom. Obviously, we've we've sort of been there um, in terms of a, a previous Elder game, but um, a lot more detail this time, right? Like a lot more uh, new nuance to it. Um, and obviously, we there's a lot of wonder to the bridge in terms of the Dark Elves for us. We've we've we did an entire other release uh, about them having the opportunity to go back to um, this region um, to uh, experience this incredible biome again, to get the incredibly weird critters back, back on screen, um, mm. but do it in a new kind of way. Um, CJ Greb, when he, he's uh, our art director, whenever he talks about this stuff, he's, he gets very excited about the opportunity to sort of paint with new palettes. Obviously Tamriel tends to sometimes be a little bit more, like dour, you know, it's it's got a bit of a, a a gray to it. So, like in particular on on this this part of the continent, um, getting to introduce a little bit of new color into that um, Vardenfell red, like that that beautiful smoky, you know, backdrop, is like a, a great opportunity. Mm. And then the Telvanni themselves, like egotistical wizards make for good stories right like it's just mm-hmm. it's just you know you just kind of wind them up and just watch them go and it's 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 cake it's wonderful so the thing with the Talvani is um the Dunmer, like as you said like very well explored very well documented very beloved in the community uh and they're very spiritual culture but then i believe 
the word used uh, within the lore itself is the Telvanni iconoclasts. Right. Very irregular, very uh, non-traditional. Um, how do you, how, how did you transplant those characters within the settings of, okay, we have Necrom, which is one of the holiest cities in the Dunmer culture. How do you transplant these almost alien-like Dunmer into this place? A great question. Um, so Tom Murphy was the zone lead uh, for Necrom, and his goal was very much about making sure to put that alien experience, uh, put that sort of strange, like on screen and in your face, right? So um, Necrom itself as a setting, the city itself, um, existed from before the Dark Elves were Dark Elves. Um, a beautiful opportunity to explore their ancestor culture um, from basically the, the deep past, essentially. Um, the way that we translated that was by taking, you know, again, I've talked a lot about the opportunities that existed within the lore. Did a lot of reading, you know, took a lot of notes on sort of what the Chimer cared about, um, the diaspora that happened across the continent, how early Dark Elf culture tried to, like, differentiate itself from um, people that had come before it, and coalescing that into something sort of coherent and beautiful and ancient and weird um, within Necrom through the amazing art of the world builders and that team. Um, I think it's a really, I don't know, uh, man, early in your journey, you get to meet a character, uh, a prelate of the Keepers of the Dead, um, mm. who are the protectors of the city. And... His characterization is wonderful for a variety of reasons. Um, he kind of, he as a character, kind of goes on a journey over the course of the main quest, which is fantastic. A very well written character by by Rich Baker. Um, but the stuff that he talks about when you, if you get a chance to talk to him in sort of optional conversations and stuff, where you can dig into his view on death and ancestor worship and what the city itself means, to me, that's like a great distillation of the opportunity we have. Like. You know, we're all used to the cultural tropes of the real world and right. how that that stuff has manifested over thousands of years of human culture. Getting to a chance to like dig into the brains of like literal alien beings. The dark elves have very different sort of a very different moral fabric than we do. Uh, it's just a great opportunity, and so I, I I hope that that comes through when you play. Like I hope when you when you get get in there and walk the streets of Necrom, you get to see kind of what Tom had in his head when he sat down to describe this zone for the first time. Because uh, I think it's incredible. I think this is when I read the the description of the zone for the first time. I won't lie. Like I literally turned around and I said to my boss and I said to Tom, like, this is the coolest thing we have ever done. I am so excited to work on it. Like, you know, I um I came back sort of early in high high was like sort of coalesced as a thing, but it was still in early days of development. Hmm. Um, and I've played all the other releases. Um, and I'm genuinely I think this is the coolest thing that we've done in Elder Scrolls Online. Period. It's it's dope as hell. You know, I've always said that, like, to people asking questions about, you know, is ESO worth playing for the story, or, like, does it do Elder Scrolls right? And I've always said that ESO is extremely good at showing the day-to-day -day lives and cultures of the cultures of Tamriel, and I gotta say, Necrom is another hit in that regard. Like, I love, like most people, finding more about Dumber, 
and Necrom delivers, I gotta say. I, you Thank you for mentioning that. Like, I strongly encourage folks when they play, you know, obviously there's a bunch of great content to do and you should do it. But like, I really think the world builders have like gone way above and beyond this time. There's so many very specific assets that were created to, to prop up that sense of life you're talking about. Give yourself a chance just to sort of like go on slow mode and just walk through the streets and like listen to the ambient chatter, right? And just look at all the little, there's so much little like bric-a-brac that they set out because people are leaving little offerings for their ancestors, right? And like these guys, ever ever since, uh, you know, the game shipped, the world builders have been telling stories just as strongly as me or any of the other writers or any of the designers, right? And so all the world builders, when they get in there, they tell these little tiny micro stories with like, you know, a little, there's a little teddy bear next to like a little plinth in a corner of Necrom. And you just know, right, that the ancestor that whoever was worshiping was like a little, a young child, right? And what kind of like conversations would you have with your great, 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 not grandmother, but like your ancestor mm. who's in that region, right? Like right. near your great, great grandmother, you know, who was a tiny child, right? What kind of conversations would you have with that person? Like, I love that stuff. It, it really, it speaks to what sort of, Alien cultures can be like very just weird for the sake of weird, and I I think that's one of the things that differentiates Elder Scrolls cultures is they they have that that truth to them. I think that's definitely one of the things I enjoy the most about the Elder Scrolls Online. Um, these seemingly almost innocent, almost irrelevant details that when you actually look at them, they paint something much greater, and that they're, they're, even though it's just a small tiny cog. When it moves, you can see the, the whole entire machine move with it. And also these tiny details that, again, for us lore nerds, when we look at them deeply, we realize, oh, there's some incredible depth here. Um, probably one of my favorite things that was done, uh, one of these small details, was Sanctum Ophidia, the trial. You guys named the quest the oldest ghost. Oh, and immediately, yeah. I went, oh, the Void Ghost, the Serpent Constellation, Vivek Sermons. And then I remember, it was the second or third time I did Sanctum Video, way back years, years ago. I looked at the door, the entrance to it. And then there's these two serpents on the door. And then behind the two serpents, there's a dragon. I'm like, oh, that's the dichotomy of Akatosh and Lorcan on the doors. And that's such a small detail, but that just speaks entire volumes to the deeper lore. I was like, wow, that's an amazing thing. Like, that's not something I would have, like, we, we often talk about developers and just how they come up with these ideas, but that's not something I would have ever conceived. And honestly, hats off to all of you. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's like I was saying before, like, everybody, and when I, I mean everybody, like, um, the QA folks, the, the artists, the animators, everybody's just as invested in, in making sure that the Elder Scrolls as a franchise is represented by the work we do as me or or someone in a leadership position absolutely one of the great greatest sources for the the little tidbits of lore you know that start building the puzzle piece is and has been the little stealing items you know the like contraband yes yes there's like thousands oh, of yeah. them and they every single one of them has a little lore blurb attached to them and it just and literally every single one of them is just a tiny story about life in tamriel they are all amazingly written. I'm glad that, that they stuff. continue to be made. Oh yeah, man! No, uh, it's one of our, 
it's one of the, the sort of the fun tasks uh, the writers get to take on when we we shift into a new piece of content because you're right every time we we do a new drop we always um flesh out some new contraband some new we call them steelies some new some new things to steal um i i genuinely think my most successful writing i've done for the game ever is a steely which is erotica for werewolves of course what <laughs> that's a classic uh, one that's yeah. one of the first okay. ones uh, a very a very specific tract for a very specific clientele right like mm. it's <laughs> gotta live uh, you know, i love them i love yeah. them so much I think there's a Michael. I, no. I feel like you're the sort of Herodotus of Elder Scrolls. <laughs> it feels like. <laughs> I think that's a really. Even now, like I log on to one of my necromancers. To this day, I still have cl the Clockwork Jigalag effigy. Oh, sure. Saved. Because <laughs> I remember when I first did it in game, I lost my mind. I'm like, oh my god, they actually mentioned him. <laughs> it was just I, I, I keep a red squirrel paw on my main, you know, just as a lucky charm. Could have the red squirrel. And the, my, <laughs> my favorite one is the um, the mock turtle scoot because I, again I love Battlespire and just right. seeing the mock turtle mentioned at all is just it makes me giddy, you know. Like again, it's these tiny, much these larger than it should be. It's these tiny details you guys put in that just yeah, we love them. Yeah, just absolutely these morsels. They're they're just so amazing. They, they add this flavor to the game. I've never played in any other uh, MMO, and I've played MMO since '98. I think every quest was the very first one I played. Yeah, I'll, I'll assume these are pretty also reliable ways to get lore in, apart from voice lines, because I, from what I know, voice lines take up a lot of space in the game. Isn't it like forty? I think Cynthia and I were talking about this the other day. It's like forty gigabytes of the game. Is it's 33, 33, 30, Okay, that's that's still a lot. <laughs> So I think that's a yeah. pretty cool way of inserting more lore, apart from dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. And, just straight and books. Exactly right. Like um, we were talking about before, like um, that sense of like be living in the world, right? Like mm. of actually being a person. I absolutely agree. I think the Steelies are the are a great way to like, you know, you can you can pick up an object and and read the little blurb and like, yeah, it's like a, just a quiet moment in someone's life at some point, right? Like good or bad, right? Like some some of the Steelies imply that something terrible has happened. Um, and some of them are just like very, I think they're very sweet. You know, like stuff like a stuffed slowed plushie or whatever, right? Like like the 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 stuff that that says about the world and about like the, the stories that we as people tell our children and, and how we interact with stuff that frankly is terrifying, right? Like right. I, I love that. That's like a, that's like a quick mini, that's like it's once it's just tiny story in one little item and i love that Man, i should start stealing more <laughs> um. uh the conversation of the back towards uh necrom right uh every year auden's nephis and i have this little bet where, where are we going next where we're we going next and every year nephis fails and red says yeah. it's a red guard it's red guard it's okay red it's guard. not every year i think my bet okay. was osmer this year it was like one year come on it was three years in a row it was not three years in a row there's no way yeah <laughs> it was and and then when you guys announced Necrom, uh, first off, we were, uh, we were very surprised. Pleasantly surprised because, was it 2017, you guys went to Morrowind? And we did Varendenfell. Mm -hmm. And then we were very astonished that you guys would go back to a race that you've done before, or a culture you've done before. But now, as you speak of the Talvani and just how different they are, how alien they are, it makes more sense to us. But I'm curious, um, what... Uh, 
drove you guys to make that decision to do the Telvanni, to do Necrom and Hermaeus Mora? Absolutely. Um, so like I said before, like it, it stems from that, that sort of single nugget of an idea, secrets on secrets on secrets. But I, I think in a broader context, right? Like if you, you know, you guys have played the game for a long time, um, playing through the launch content, the absence of the Telvanni is one of the fun mysteries, right? It's one of the fun, like in, um, in Morrowind, right? In, in test three, they're a pretty noticeable presence, right? Like the, that quest yeah. line and those characters, they really influence the world. And so the fact that they're just not there in either the politics or the framing, either in the launch game or, you know, obviously the Telvanni aren't in the Vardenfell release. Um, and that's a great quest line, but um, I would, I would make the argument. They don't like their hand is not heavy on the scale, right. In terms of the main quest on the Island. Nope. And so, um, rolling forward right like hey you know who are we going to talk about the Telvanni make sense in terms of secrets is that enough is that enough framing well i think you're gonna you know i think in the release you'll see like there's a lot of there there um it all goes back to like the chutzpah of saying to literally the rest of the world hey i know you guys are like doing this little war thing um, but we're, we're out, like, peace, right? Like, I, mm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, the cojones it takes to, like, say that to the likes of, you know, uh, uh, the Tribunal, uh, Iron, um, Yorin, uh, like, that is uh, a beautiful, wonderful sort of emblem of who the Telvanni are. And getting a chance to, like, Again, like put that on your screen, let you play an experience where you deal with these like massive egos. Like you know, writers and designers love to deal with like egotistical characters because like it's just an excuse to like work out work out stuff, right? Like that's it's wonderful. Um because they can say the quiet part loud. That's that's what being an egotistical character excuse me. That's what being an egotistical character in fiction is all about, right? They they get to say the quiet part loud, put it in your face. And just have you deal with it. And that's I'm not gonna say that's every character in in uh, Necrom because that's not. I don't think that's true. We have a we have a bunch of different variations on how characters come across. Um, Gidane, I, I mentioned earlier, um, Prelate Gidane, a great example of a much more sort of low key dark elf character. But yeah, there's some big personalities on the peninsula, and um, getting to have you walk among them and, and see what they're about, I think is uh, wonderful. And then you get to compare and contrast that with Hermaeus Mora, who is perhaps the biggest personality of all, right? Like, man, that guy really, really loves himself, right? It's like, you can tell, right? Dude is dude is a big fan. Hermaeus Mora is the number one captain of the Hermaeus Mora fan club. That's his drive. <laughs> it actually segues really well into the next question, which is, um, how do you use Hermaeus Mora, who is like this enigmatic, creepy, Lovecraftian character that's been around forever, and st we still know barely anything about him. How do you balance that with him being, in some ways, the main character of this expansion? Absolutely. Um, so previously, um, in Skyrim, and then in sort of the, the base Elder Scrolls online experience, he played a very sort of... Um, I mean, enigmatic is the only way to say it, right? Like, he played a role where you did stuff with him, but you kind of didn't know if you were coming or going. 
you never really understood exactly why you were doing things for him. Um, his, you know, you could kind of see his motivations in in Dragon the Dragonborn DLC pretty well. But even then, he very rarely let you like see any of his cards. In this experience, um, and I obviously for obvious reasons, I don't want to get too spoilery with it. But like, the stakes are higher for him personally. Um, which is a really interesting place for a Daedric Prince to be in, you know? Like, so often the Daedric Princes are um, manipulating mortals and having them dance to their tune. And in a bunch of releases that Elder Scrolls Online has done, you're dealing with, you're either dealing with them directly to punch them in the face, or you're cleaning up after some nonsense that they've strewn across the landscape. Like, we deal with Daedric Princes a lot. This is, this is a chance for Mora to be, you're more of his partner, kind of, than you've ever been, I think, with any Daedric Prince before. Because that's how seriously Mora is taking the situation, right? Like, he would not do what he's doing in the Necrom release if he didn't believe that the stakes were high enough to, like, you know, we're just ugly bags of mostly water, right? Like, you know, Daedric Princes don't want to deal with us on, like, on a regular day, and Hermaeus Mora is having a not a great day. So the fact that he's willing to put up with us weird mortals uh, tells you how seriously he's taking the situation. So um, with all that said, it's a character thing, right? Just like any other character, Mora has motivations. He's got he's got a past. He has secrets, lots of secrets. And so the way that we kind of indexed on saying something new with Mora, not just like repeating the beats that have been done in other releases, is by making his character like first and foremost the in, the the lens through which you see him. Like, I think in a lot of other cases, Mora gets used as kind of almost um, a force of nature, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially in, like the the base ESO quests, he's like he's just there to be like kind of a spooky. They're fun quests, right? But like he's just there to be like a spooky like ah, there's a bunch of tentacles and I'm talking to them, like. The Mora that you experience in Necrom is is a person who has needs, and like you get the sense is kind of worried, um, and that's a very interesting place for Daedric Prince to be. Would you say this partnership, I suppose, is a closer partnership or working relationship than, say, our relationship with Meridia from the base game? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I will just offer my opinion. Hmm. Which is that um, I don't think Meridia's motivations in the base game were terribly altruistic. Okay. And so our, mm-hmm. our like engagement with her, right? Like our, our allyship with her, I think was like, we were just a tool of convenience, right? Mm. You could, I think you could label that on, on Mora as well to a certain extent. But I think in terms of like, let me say it very clearly. Mora has skin in the game in Necrom. Okay. I won't go into more detail than that. I think if if things hadn't turned out the way that Meridia wanted in the base game, she'd have been fine, right? Like, like uh, at the end of the day, no skin off her nose, right? Like, she didn't... It wouldn't have pleased her if Molek Ball had succeeded in his scheme. It wouldn't have made her happy. But, like, at the end of the day, she would have been fine, right? Um, this is a different situation for Mora. Interesting. So that's, how I, that's how I would sort of uh, compare and contrast these two two scenarios. Hmm, okay. So I usually don't do this, but because of what I've heard from other people, I went ahead and th- they gave like glowing reviews. So I went ahead and did the whole quest on the PTS. 
And then aside from the fact that I'm also doing the hard modes on PTS as well, I've spent more time on the PTS than I have on the live servers now. <laughs> but, uh, um, and I don't want to give away spoilers as well, but you guys made the decision to incorporate some of the lesser utilized princes. I, I guess that's the better, best way I can put it. Um, what was the decision like? Because I remember in the towards the end of the main quest line, Molag Ball talks about the politics of Oblivion and how infinitely complex they are. Right. And I could only and that's what when I was playing through that quest through the Necrom quest line, my mind immediately went to that and I thought to myself, Oh, you guys were probably playing up on that angle that was said what almost what is it now, like seven years ago, eight years ago? More? Uh, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say yeah. for the main quest it'd be we're coming up on ten here. It's yeah. gonna be great. Uh, so do you guys do stuff like that where you I know we talked about you guys looking at Arena and some older games. Do you guys look at ESO itself and then take parts of it and then look at it and go, hey, you know what? There's a story here. Let's expand it. And was that the case with Necrom? Absolutely. Um I I, I hope it comes across that we try to do that every like um the most obvious example of that is like bring characters back from previous releases, right? Um mm-hmm. that's a nice sort of discrete sort of unit of content to point at. But um, uh, I think we're always looking for opportunities for like context and narrative and lore from previous releases to influence what we're doing in the new thing. Um, uh, I I know that it's sort of a um, it's a topic of conversation both inside and outside the building about sort of the the conceptual reality of like everything's happening all at once within the within the year, right? Um, so there's certain ways that we can be referential to events and certain ways we can't. But uh, absolutely, like, uh, I love um, when we have the opportunity to, like, pluck a nugget out of, especially the base game, uh, because, uh, you know, I'm very fond, for obvious reasons, I'm very fond of some of the stuff we did back then, um, and reframe it here in the in the new context um in terms of daedric politics in particular right like uh so i like a lot of people am a uh, recovering catholic and i think (laughs) just like um every writer who has that as sort of a a baseline i always when i think of because at the at the end of the day right the daedra are demons right you know for, for for narrative purposes there there are demons and as soon as you start talking about like demon politics or the politics between heaven and hell, Adrian Daedra, you know, pick pick your pick your poison, um, you end up talking about high school politics. Because man, that's one of the, my favorite things about uh, like gods and and demons and monsters and stuff is that we as people can't help but write them with the level of like political complexity of like a, a really nasty infighting high school. So that's the the lens that I always use when I think of the Daedric Princes. Because you get your popular kids, you got your unpopular kids, you got your jocks, you got your geeks, you got your goths, right? Like, you can easily put labels on all the Daedric Princes and slot them into a fun... I think it'd be a, actually be a fun, like, AU, right? Um, there are, for various reasons, a, a couple of Daedric Princes that just have not risen to the level of... Again, characters are tools. Um... They haven't been super useful, right, as tools to solve narrative problems. Mola Ball is a great headliner, right? Like when Mola Ball rolls to, rolls into the story, you know what you're getting, right? Like you know the experience you're going to have. Mayrune's Dagon, um, 
Azura, Meridia, or like some of these characters kind of bring the party when they show up. There's a couple of other Daedra princes that like don't have quite as clearly defined personalities or portfolios, or and so yeah, absolutely. Like this was an opportunity again. Thank you for not being super spoilery um, to elevate some of those characters, bring them to the fore, and give them some interesting stuff to do. Um, and we're always looking for opportunities to do that. Uh, I love that the Elder Scrolls franchise is set up this way, and I even more so love it because of how the Adria are set up. Like, you know, they're they're the weird, distant parents that are never we're never going to be good enough for, right? And and we can have very complex relationships with, because you know, Stendar hasn't come back from getting the milk like you know two thousand years ago. It's great. It's great. I got a real quick tangent question. Um, would have you ever considered doing? Adric stuff, you know, like it's, it's like one of those holes kind of in the greater Elder Scrolls mythos. Like, there's we don't know a ton about them, and it's they very only... rarely influence the physical world because it's, it takes a lot of energy for them to do so. But um, have you ever considered, you know, throwing in an Adric plot? I would say, like, just super truthfully, we've never. If you, if you guys have have had a conversation, chances are we've probably had something similar in-house too as about a potential story opportunity i will say you know putting on my fun please half for a moment yeah. um that is the kind of thing that if i were to be in a conversation about i would try to sort of heavily disincentivize us from moving in that direction and the reason for that is um the adra and their role in tamriel is one of the things that really sets the elder scrolls apart from other franchises right like like I love Dungeons and Dragons. I love Faerun, right? But the gods of Faerun are very active participants in a variety of fashions, right? With the events on in that setting, the Adra as remote parents, as as the you know sender who hasn't come back from milk, like that says a lot about what reality is. I think to me, and maintaining that as like one of the sort of defining characteristics of the Elder Scrolls IP is one of the things I think that that I would sort of be inclined to to put as, you know, there are there's no hard and fast rules, right? Like, at the end of the, except maybe talking about where the Dwemer went, but like, yeah. uh... <laughs> like, there's some rules, you know, don't talk about the Dwemer, don't talk about Akavir, don't talk too much about Adra. Well, and, you know, but even the things you just described, and I just, I said that jokingly, right? We've done that in the game, right? We have lots of characters right. in the game who have opinions about where the Dwemer went or, you know, about what the deal with the Adra are. But I'd rather, again, that, you know, um, unreliable narration, right? I'd, I'd rather keep it in that sphere and provide, excuse me, provide a lot of fodder for great conversations about it than have, like, you know, Hey guys, it's Akatosh. How's it going? <laughs> Whoa, things are messed up around here. Let's fix this. Like, you know, immediately, right? I think that's less interesting, right? Because that that removes a ton of ambiguity. Now, this is a specific character, right? This is a specific person and a personality and a, and a voice actor. And like, in a way, actually, let's go back to the to the drummer because I think that's an even easier thing. Okay. Um, any answer that we or Bethesda give to you guys as players for where the Dwemer went will be way less interesting than anything you've got in your head. Like, I'm just going to tell you right now. There's no, it's such a great mystery now, right? Mm. There's no answer we could give you that would live up to expectations. So I would rather just not do it, right? I, I would agree. just, that I would just rather decide <laughs> that as a conversation point. And I feel kind of the same way about the Adra, right? Like, if Standard were, were to roll up 
he would not meet your expectations. He wouldn't meet my expectations, honestly, uh, oh, okay. to, be, to be really frank. So, like, that's why I'd like to keep them in that beautiful box in the sky. It's interesting that you say that because you guys have actually done a really, really good job of painting the Adra as grayish characters. They're not, you know, always the good guys. Right. Uh, I think one of my favorite uh, things, it's a very small thing, but when you do the uh, the Southern Elsewhere questline and you speak to Jadari, she flat out says, Alkosh is tired of mortals. She says, I believe the line is, Alkosh watches mortals with a weary eye. And then she also says that Alkosh will not help you unless one of his blood helps you. And I believe Nafalar is the character in that sense. So, like, he's not just, he's not motivated by altruism at all. Which is, which is funny because, you know, he's one of the biggest, uh, he has one of the biggest bases of worship within Tamriel as a whole. And then you have these pseudo um, Adric characters in the form of the Celestials. Obviously, one of them extremely corrupt, going back to the Void Ghost. And just these little, little things that you have. And I really, I really appreciate them a lot. Well, and, uh, and it's all point of view, right? Like, that's why the Monomyth yeah. is such a great sort of like um, construct that we can move around the board and we can, we can use as a framework for a lot of different stories, right? Like, everybody sees Akatosh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, culturally, everybody sees Akatosh in a different way, and so you look at you look at say Oriel, right? And Oriel has a bunch of baggage to them that you know the way the Nords look at, at them and the way that the Imperials look at them. Like like it's all through a, through a lens darkly, right? And yeah. so one of the things I really love about the setting is that the Adra, and again, why I don't think the Adra should ever like show up on screen is like it's. I think it's much more interesting for everybody to have their viewpoints and opinions. Mm. Well, they sort of have shown up, like a little bit in Morrowind. You know, when they have their you're talking about the end of Oblivion, or well, yeah, the end of Oblivion. But also in Morrowind, it's there's like these too. avatars guy. Like one of them is heavily implied to be Talos. One I believe is Stabello. One I believe is Stendar. It was it's Mara, been a while. Yeah, actually, yeah, it is Mara. But um, yeah, you know, like they don't come down, but their influence, like their fingers, are still in the Mundus. As but they're not to, present. Yeah, as opposed to Skyrim, where like you actually meet Sun and you have to fight him in order to get across the bridge. Right, and again, it's it's a great way to compare and contrast them with the Daedra, right? Because Teogorath will show up for your birthday party, right? Like you just have to ask nice, <laughs> and Oreo will send you twenty bucks, maybe, Even. maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so sort of getting so, away. From, sorry, what? Oh, I was gonna say that the Aedra are like concepts the daedra are like personalities that's what i've heard i've always took aedra as like uh for what, what little i know of lore like kind of like sentient forces of nature maybe like the wind sometimes they care Basically, sometimes it doesn't that's what they are yeah um but kind of get away from the aedra and daedra thing uh you mentioned about the telvani how you just they're egotistical um how, how do you what, what was the inspiration behind your narrative framing around the Telvanni? Like, are they just, you know, egotistical maniacs and powerful wizards? Or is there, like, more inspirations behind that? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, just like with Mora, we talked a little bit about, like, getting to 
put a new a new frame around him. He's got skin in the game. Um, it's a new chance for to, for us to characterize him in in a bit of a different sense. Um, putting the Telvani front and center as main characters of this narrative lets us show the the sort of the length and breadth of what does it mean to be um, a powerful sorcerer within that house, right? So. Um, you got Mel the Mouthless, who is a, again, I want to avoid spoilers, but he is a very sp- sort of specific viewpoint on a Telvanni Magister. He um, is more, ex- for a variety of reasons, he's a little bit more accessible, I think, than your average Magister. So the player is able to spend quite about a bit of time uh, talking with, with them. So Melna is going to be a great sort of like on-ramp character into the mind of a Magister, into what it takes to be viable within um uh, within the house we have a number of other characters who are within the house who interact like politically you get to do a little uh house politics um i apologize for the coughing uh you're fine the the trees here in maryland are you know just vigorously engaging with each other and so i oh my oh i understand completely yeah so I, i i i suffer a little bit as a result um yeah, it, it's it's a great chance for us to sort of crack this, because the Telvanni, um, other than what you see in, in uh, Elder Scrolls Three, and because of time and distance, their sort of setting and their their relationship to the culture then is a li- is different than it is here and now. Um, but the core of what it means to be a magister, the core of what the house like is, is still pretty inscrutable. And so this was an opportunity for us to like crack that open and make demystify them a little bit. Um, there's still plenty of mystery. Like we, you know, we we don't let all the cats out of the bag. But spending as much time as you do with magisters and you know representatives of the house uh, in this, as you do in this release, I think will give people a lot of chance to like understand much more directly what the what the group is about what they care about um and again what it takes to stand up to the rest of the world and you know say like now nah, we're we're neutral you guys have your war. okay having played the having played the quest on pts when i when i was interacting with the telvani characters and i was looking at the the sociology of the characters and the politics within the house telvani i was vaguely reminded of star wars in terms of the fifth lords and the almost sociopathic culture that's promoted within it. And I was wondering, like, do you guys like draw sources, like inspiration from these different sources and stuff like that? When you're writing these larger than life characters that are so self-obsessed with each other? That's a, that's a great touch point. Um, I believe that did come up. I know one that Tom and I talked about specifically was, um, you look at the different sort of magical groups out in the world, right? Um, the Mages Guild is like um, the IBM of magic, right? Like safe, um, kind of boring, um, but like has really good best practices, right? They've been doing this for a long time, right? Um, and then there's a bunch of other groups. The Telvani are, in my view, um, uh, Silicon Valley startup culture, right? <laughs> Big personalities. Because all the pitfalls that entails. Right, exactly. Wow. Like, like the upside is very up, right? You get some incredible magics. You get some beautiful... Like, uh, the Vard... I um, I tried to, like, bring this in, actually, in the Loremasters archive um, with uh, Diveth. Um, the Vardvark is a product, right? Like, you had a guy, you had a guy in his garage who made this cute little thing, 
And when the Telvanni Council got wind of this marketable item, even though he wasn't super engaged with it, they were like, guess what you're doing now? Here we go. We're going to market this. It's going to be wonderful, right? Um, exactly that mentality, right? So, so big upside, potentially like huge, tremendous, like nern-shaping magics. But man, there's like a lot of big personalities. There's a lot of like... I would say that the Telvanni are not generally speaking, maybe like the most socially well-adjusted people, like mm. as a group, right? Um, so you get a lot of that. You get a lot of like those different factions and, and, and micro-factions and you're my friend today, but by Thursday we're enemies again. Like that kind of a, a vibe, I think, you know, all of us have, have engaged with sort of the popular culture around Silicon Valley. I have some friends who've worked in a bunch of tech companies, so I've heard stories firsthand. Um, that's, I think, sort of some of the influence in the framework we had around Telvani, you know, what it means to be Telvani Magister. I'm getting, like, cutthroat, and, but smart vibes. Right. right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tons of intelligence. Sometimes not the wisest people. Right. David Fear cloned himself several times to... I'm not even going to get into that, but mm, mm. <laughs> like he I'm did pretty, an I'm amazing sure. thing for a stupid reason. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm also pretty sure he hasn't done that yet. Thank goodness. Yeah. Cause... That's, that's later. Yeah. Uh, Cause yeah, those are, that's a, that's a choice choice. All right. Um, we could get into it. I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> uh, I actually have this, really burning question i've always wanted to ask a like a lore master which now happens to be you um it's always kind of bothered me ever since i found out as a eso player about it so Can i tell you about this no no i told you about this after i found out about this and you didn't believe me and then you looked it up well, i've known about it yeah since i told you <laughs> but anyway i don't whatever. okay so my burning question is okay about ESO or the lore and the stories of ESO that we get to experience as players, apparently it all takes place within one year, like the second era, year 582. So everything from Orsinium to uh, Necrom, the vestige is somehow doing all this, all these adventures, saving the world 10 times in one year. Is there a reason for this? Is there a consideration for maybe changing this in the future? Because it, I, I'm not just the only person that has a problem with it. Because there's a lot of players who are like, once they find out, they're like, well, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> Kills my immersion. I want to add really quick, it didn't, it wasn't always like that. Like when Marwin came out, the first release had a jump forward in time. But I, they were later removed. I thought that was with Orsinium. One year. It was with Orsinium. Orsinium was originally in two, a second era of 583. And then in Morrowind, it was changed back to 582. There's definitely a letter in Morrowind that was dated as a year that is not the base game year that was later removed. Okay, well, regardless, is there uh, any, I guess, like discussion on your end about that? So, um, I will frame this in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, I think early in this in this conversation, um, my sort of primary role is to be a, a, a resource uh, uh, for this stuff. Um, you're not wrong. You know, I won't I won't disagree with you. Uh, canonically, everything is happening in one year. Mm -hmm. um, the 
the thing, the way that I sort of discussed, because I think um, when I talked to Imperial Library, we talked about this a little bit as well. And the way that I'll frame my response to this is um, within being a professional creative is sometimes about constraints, right? Mm -hmm. Like in a real, in a very real way, constraints breed creativity. Um, if we could do literally anything, um, I actually think it would be detrimental to the product that we make because um, because we're operating within a specific environment, because we're we're operating within like the the needs to you know we're we're not just trying to entertain you guys, right? We're trying to make right. sure that that you guys are engaged enough with what we're making that you're like, hey, we'll, we'll slip you a couple a little coin, right? Um, all that said, the the framework as it exists is meant to i think support the franchise as a whole right hmm. we could very easily you know, let's just take the number of releases we've done so far um if we space those out one year at a time you guys are familiar with the timeline of tamriel right mm -hmm. there's some pretty important stuff coming up like from a historical perspective like just around the corner um and so like we we want to be um supportive to everybody that's working on an Elder Scrolls product right mm -hmm. we don't want to mm -hmm. dominate the conversation completely and so i think that's one of the things that feeds into this this framework um now again i want to frame this as this is just me talking mm -hmm. um i i don't represent anything beyond that um i understand that that people find it sometimes frustrating i i totally hear that and i don't want to downplay that at all um I completely understand why it's frustrating. Um, the the best way I could frame it is is by going back to that original thing that we talked about when we talked about unreliable narration, right? The 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 one true canonicity, the one true canon that you have as an Elder Scrolls character is what you experience. So for me, I'm one of those folks, probably not surprising, who like has played through everything in you know in order as they've been released, right? So for my character's can canonicity, like, I started on Canarthus, because of course I'm an Mary Dominion player, hello. Um, I started in Canarthus Roost, hmm. uh, and I played through to the end of Reaper's March, I went off and I, I saved Tamriel and Cold Harbor, and I've done each release in sequence as we've gone along. And so that's the canon of my character. And at the end of the day, I think that's that's the most important timeline, personally, right? That's the the timeline that we want to be respectful for. It's one of the reasons, like, our tools are great, um, but it is it, it does take effort to do things like, hey, I recognize that you did the Elsewhere chapter, right? Mm. That does take some effort on our part to make sure that that happens, but it's worth it, right? Because I love it um, when I when you talk to Iran on High Isle, and I've done you know everything, right? And I got to ask her questions about all the adventures we had together back in Galmere Dominion. Like to me, that's deeply as a player, that's deeply satisfying. So that's how I like personally frame it, right? It's like, what's the what's the personal canon of your character? How does that map to your gameplay experience? And and can that is that satisfying? Do we make sure that we recognize your player, your character's experience as much as possible within the game? That's where it lands on my head. Right, that makes sense with the uh, constraint you have, you need as a, for the timeline. If, but out of curiosity, I, I don't know much about the war. What comes after the Three Banners War? Our Receptum's coming up. 
Yeah, within the next 300 years, the Tiber War starts and the foundations of the Third Empire. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's a lot There's of a chapters. Of other <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's Tiber Septim? I mean, is he even important? <laughs> no, whatever. Sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, Alex? like, no, I was saying like I fully appreciate the fact that you have to make compromises. Uh, oh, it's yeah. not easy. Like you guys, like when you have the team of like several hundred people working on one thing, that's a live service that's constantly being mm. updated with millions of lines of code. Like I can imagine, it gets very hectic. Uh, but it is definitely one of the things that we see in ESOU, particularly from new players, is that they start the game up, and the most frequent question we get is, where do I go next? Right. No, no, and, and I want to make super clear, <clears throat> as much as I can, and I, I, I really mean this from the bottom of my heart, we absolutely hear this as feedback. And and we I would strongly invite, obviously in a, like, um, um, hopefully in an uplifting fashion, in a, in a, in a constructive, creative fashion, please definitely give this kind of feedback, right? Because I think right. it's super helpful. Everybody comes at the game from a different point of view, right? Like, some people live and die um, on the battles in Cyrodiil, and that's I, I, and their experience is just as valid and just as interesting to me as like folks like like you all who are like reading every book, like engaging with every character, right? And it's a it's a big gamut of experiences that that go into being a player of Elder Scrolls Online. So it, if you ever find yourself being like it's frustrating to me, right, that I don't I don't have a resource to to look at the timeline, or I think it's weird that everything's happening in one year. Definitely give that feedback because I think that's super valid. Um, I don't ever want you and the folks watching to get the um, impression that we don't care about that because we absolutely do. I promise you, we do, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. we hear it. So I want to ask something. It's a little bit higher level. It might be a little touchy, but um. I'll start by saying um, Final Fantasy XIV is another MMO. You know, it's a competitor to ESO, to be frank, uh, just by virtue of being the same genre. And the story is very much linear, and you have to play it in order. And, you know, you see these characters grow, and, like, they go on adventures with you, they live, they die. Um, Do you think that could work for ESO? Like, a mandatory linear timeline with like reoccurring characters like i'm not saying to make the current game into that but do you think it could work for it so i love final fantasy 14 i think it's an awesome game i played it a whole bunch um i love the way they did tell stories no um fundamentally they do not tell stories the way that elder scrolls tell stories Mm. um we so in my head we have the same problem space as Bethesda does when they they do um, numbered ex- numbered releases. Ours is just it's just the scale, right? The, our, our, it's just a sense. It's just a problem of scale. So in Skyrim, right, they have to write and and design the game such that you can go do any quest line in any order, and they can't stomp on each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like you need to be able if you want to w- walk out the front door at Helgen, make a left, and go be do the Dark Brotherhood first and not care about, literally don't even care about the dragons, right? Like the dragon attacks aren't even happening. You have to, they have to support that, right? They have to allow you to do that. We have the same essential problem, except scaled up dramatically, right? right? Across many, across many different releases, across many years now, almost 10, almost a a decade of making the game, right? Mm -hmm. So I love that as a framework. 
and I think that the core, the original question you were asking about, like everything happening in one, I completely understand where where that's a a concern and why that strains credulity. But I think those those are two very different questions, right? Do I think the Elder Scrolls Online should be a linear story, you know, that starts? I even I mentioned how we wrote um, uh, the base game, right? I even now today go if i knew if we knew then what the product is going to be now we never would have done that right because at the time we were writing for a one to two was it 50 one to 50 sorry it's been so long i don't even remember one to 50 scaling mmo experience Mm -hmm. that by definition was linear right because you you literally like if you wanted to go walk off to another zone and you were level 32 you couldn't because you get stomped right like that that was how the game was designed but now, right, with One Tamriel and the, the 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 true freedom of an actual Elder Scrolls experience, which I love, and I think I think people, it's one of the reasons people play the game, right? I genuinely don't think it'd be a good idea to to make it truly linear and say like, hey, um, uh, uh the Vardenfell release, the Morrowind release, canonically happens like before uh, High Isle or before Blackwood. Right. I don't I don't think that's a good idea. Now. Again, what I do love is the way that we... I mentioned before your personal canon, right? Like, for me, the Morrowind release happened before Blackwood because that's how I played them. So when you go to Blackwood, right? And I don't remember if we did this offhand in Blackwood because I wasn't here for it. But if we did ever reference something from Morrowind in Blackwood, like, because I'd played them in that order, we would reference it. We would we would call that out. And then I would be like, mm-hmm. ah, I remember that that thing from sorry better 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 reference i definitely played the dark brotherhood before i did more um uh, blackwood so like as a member of the the dark brotherhood right that came up in the main story of the blackwood chapter right and and that was extremely gratifying to me like because i love that i love the dbh i love the thieves guild content and so that's the kind of um linear narrative i think that i i think is an elder scrolls function mm-hmm. i separate that from the everything happens in one year conversation. I think those are two separate things. I would 100% definitely agree. I think uh, Final Fantasy XIV has a definiteness to its story that that is inherently just clashes with Elder Scrolls in general. Right. Because Elder Scrolls is just, you know, it's very turbulent. But it's great. Close. Final Fantasy XIV yeah. is an awesome product. It's just a oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not dogging on it. It's different, different ways to tell a story. But right, exactly. It's a completely different style of narrative. Yeah. Um, one of the things, though, uh, was that uh, in regards to uh, the story and the way you guys continuously write stories, um, you guys like must have to continuously keep a pulse, like a hand on the pulse of what's being written as you write more and more stuff. Because the game's growing by the year. It's like phenomenal amounts of literature has been written about it. Uh, do you guys have like this you know, your own internal system of keeping track of everything? As you create more, uh, I know, or do you, <laughs> there's, this, there's this vague uh, rumor, and again, it's just rumor, that sometimes you guys have to go to the USP or like to Imperial Library to keep check on some stuff. I mean, I would frame it as whether it's um, Discord, uh, sorry, whether it's Discords or Reddit or Twitter or Facebook or websites. Like, if people are talking about um, Elder Scrolls, if they're, like, um, expressing viewpoints about the franchise, 
on some level we are we are definitely and I'm I hope this isn't creepy. We're listening, right? Like we're we're engaging in that conversation because to us, like Tamriel is like a this living, breathing space. Mm. Like we talked before about sort of that that sense of being a person on the ground, getting to sort of uh, feel what it's like to to live in on Nern, right? And in order to make that feel real in order to make it feel engaging. I think it requires us to listen to what you guys have to say. It requires us to engage with, you know, commentary on UESP, excuse me, UESP pages or like Twitter threads or whatever, pick your poison, right? Like <laughs> this is, you know, all the developers that work on Elder Scrolls Online are incredibly engaged with this as a product. But um, none of us would be doing it if you guys didn't show up and play, right? So at the end of the day, we're all just like extremely eager to make sure that the 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 world we're creating, the narratives we're crafting, are to use the British term fit for purchase, right? Like you you guys, when you walk into a chapter, we want you to expect great things from it, to expect great things from us, and to be able to deliver on them. So yeah, absolutely. We anywhere that there's uh, Elder Scrolls like nuggets to be seen and engaged with were there. Hmm. Um, and this might be another little bit of a touchy question, but um, it's related to the fan community's thing. Um, the Elder Scrolls has had a very, very long history with fan works, um, and there is a little bit of controversy with some certain fan works, um, like, uh, of course, Coda, um, and. One of the biggest ones is stuff like, you know, the um, the Utak mythos, if you've ever heard of it, of the uh, Bat Elves. Um, do you guys ever take inspiration from fan works? Like, do you ever look for ways to incorporate them, um, and pay, homage, pay homage to them, uh, or anything? Like, is that in your radar, in your sphere? That's a great question, and I'm going to answer really directly, no. And the reason for that is... Um, I don't ever want someone to feel like, um, we have stolen from them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, um, I, I think probably everybody on the call is aware of there was a un really unfortunate miscommunication, um, yeah. with a product, um, mm -hmm. on, yeah. the, on the in-game store recently. And that is, that is exactly, that experience is exactly why the answer to that question is no, because... Um, like I just said, uh, we we absolutely listen when people talk about the game, right? Like, I love this. I hated this. This character was great. Like, bring this dude back, right? That's the kind of stuff that we want to engage with. Um, we desperately want you guys to create stuff. We want you guys to create fan art and fan fiction and write, you know, endless lore screeds and do seven-hour lore breakdowns. Like, mm -hmm. I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time, you know... I might be like, I might notice it and like register that it's a thing, but it is very rare that I would like sort of click in and engage in detail because I never want to be in a situation where I'm, you know, because we're all human beings just like anybody else, right? Like, right. you know, again, I don't want to reference the thing that, that happened earlier, but like people make mistakes and I, as a human being, right, if I engage in a giant lore thread where people are throwing ideas against the wall and then I'm in a conversation 
with my boss down the line, and some part of my weird chemical soup that keeps me sentient, like, clicks back to that thing from something from some lore thread, and I regurgitate it as my own idea, that's not great. Right. That's not right. that's never that's not a situation I ever want to be in. None of us want to be in. That's that's not a situation as a developer you ever want to be in. So please keep doing it. Please keep engaging. I love how creative the Elder Scrolls the ESO fam is. Um but generally speaking, like that's the kind of thing that we try not to dig too deeply into for exactly that reason. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like mm -hmm. uh and it's very respectful, and I appreciate your answer and your candor, actually. Um, but would you say, completely hypothetical, someone who wrote a like a fan piece is hired at Zoss 10 years down the line, and they, they're on the writing team, and they go back to their own, like, you know, fan in peace. Like, would that be permitted? Would that be, you know a way to get their work into the largest larger mythos are they like prohibited from doing that i, I i'm not going to say that there would be like a hard i think the likelihood of that happening is is so unlikely i don't think that we'd ever make like a hard rule about that but i will say uh, like as i think i and and many other people who who make games have said ad infinitum making games is a deeply collaborative work like i think it would be very it would be frankly really hard to to do that like draw a straight line from i wrote this mm. this fan idea and mm. now it's in the video game i think it would be very challenging for any individual to, to do that because if nothing else my my dumb butt is is in the way of that happening right <laughs> um and uh the head of content the lead writer the right. writer who works with the designer the the designer like all down the line we're all talking to each other and engaging in creative ideas and like in this sort of theoretical situation you're talking about i would imagine they'd be very protective of of this fan idea right like that kind of thing would throw up flags very quickly in the collaborative environment that we work in mm -hmm. i think it would be very it would be very hard for that to actually like fully make its way into the video game um mm -hmm. because that's that's just kind of not how it's, it's one right. of the great parts of working at Zoss is i don't work with jerks um, I don't, you know, I don't work with Biggie. I do, don't work with Telvani Magisters, right? Like, um, people are extremely collaborative. They're very thoughtful. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a genuinely like uplifting place to work because at the, at a base level, I think we all respect each other. And so that is, I, I find it relatively unlikely that that kind of thing, that kind of person who had like an agenda would get in the door in the first place. Thank goodness. And then if they did, it would be very challenging for that thing to sort of find its way all the way through it's audiences plan the 10-year plan well I, I don't know it's just a hypothetical <laughs> and like I, I assume that some people on the writing staff would have like stuff that they're passionate about like i know um uh, your predecessor Liam Tuttle, uh said a few times that he loves like alessia stuff oh absolutely oh i mean so yeah. like people like throw out stuff they want to see and then like you know pass it down the line like hey can we maybe get this in i'm really passionate about it i love writing about it Right. We, I mean, we've talked. I think I, I'm saying this wrong. Piandonia. How do you, how, is it? Piandonia. What's the I right? I don't remember. Yeah, anyway, like, I find I find that like that concept in the lore that the 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 realm of the CLs, right? Like I find that that fascinating. I think it's a really interesting cultural thing. I've mentioned it a couple times before. Um, but like that, you know, 
everybody having everybody being human and like enjoying parts of the lore, I think is a is a plus, not a minus, right? Like mm-hmm. Lehman really liked Alessia, and so it was like a fun lens through for, for him to look at the content in the game and to find opportunities to speak to it in sort of a, a truthful way. Um, the characterization that um, I wasn't even involved with it, but like the characterization of Captain Seraven recently um, in in the Galen release, like I love how that opened the door for sea elves and and brought them into sort of a new context within the game because I think that culture is super fascinating. Um, but like, yeah, I, I think that's just the truth of it is again, we're humans, right? We're all just people. And so we, we all have stuff we like and stuff we don't um, and personal preferences end up influencing us just like any, any sort of creative outlet. But I think it's more like that, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. um, I just happen to like stuff and happen not to. I don't, I don't, I don't think any of us have agendas per se. I think it's super Great cool. Answer. You're, you're describing this collaborative environment because I think most people, when they think of lore master or writers, they don't, think of it as uh, as that intensely collaborative environment where everyone has to kind of pass each other on everything which is uh, yeah i think that probably people have misconceptions about writing for uh, a game or yeah. even writing for a screen right oh yeah so yeah, no i mean to be a writer in the games industry you absolutely need to be able to string sentences together into coherent fashion yeah. a thousand percent but um it is first and foremost a communication role yep. like you 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 are an advocate for narrative you are talking to other people you're running down problems you're problem solving you're you're um often writing documentation much more so obviously we talked earlier about dialogue writing dialogue writing is like that's the mm. it's the thing we spend the most time on and iteration on because let's face it it's expensive right getting voice actors into the booth right. is an expensive proposition um, and it's our primary channel through which we tell narrative in the game, right? But the role of being a writer in the game industry is first and foremost about like bringing together this huge nexus of different disciplines to to create that narrative. A lot of um, a lot of companies use the term uh, narrative designer to describe this work, and I I think writer and this is a long separate conversation, but I think writer and narrative designer are two different fields of study, fields of, of influence within a company, but at the at their heart, the thing that they share, right, is they're working to, together collaboratively collaboratively with a bunch of different people to like make the story happen in the game. Mm-hmm. So and I'm just that except like everybody in the company. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the week, right? Right. Like, yeah. That's really cool. About a year ago, uh we had Mike Finnegan on the podcast. Yep. And he said that Zoss works almost two years in advance on new releases and expansions. I would imagine, like, with how complex the narratives of your expansions are and how nuanced they are, how many layers you, they have, uh, working on multiple expansions at once, again, two years in advance. Like, you're currently working on Necrom, making sure it's polished, because the release date is just in a few weeks, of, like, just a few days away now. Right. And then if you're also working on the next expansion and then another one t- two years from now, that can get immensely overwhelming. So um, how do you guys manage that? Thankfully, the number of people that have to keep sort of multiple full releases in their head is, is kind of a small group. Um, mm. The bulk of the team, you know, descends like locusts on um, this a specific release. And we, we you know, we do our, our many iterative cycles 
developing the product, making it great, um, making sure it's it's in a good place, and then the swarm moves on to the next thing. And then, like at this point, right, uh, Necrom, I think Tom Murphy primarily is like probably the, the, the last man standing in terms of making sure that the game that, that we play on launch day is going to be like that, that really incredible moment. Because by now, just before ship, like, something like 99% of all the, the tracked, but I'm not gonna say the bugs, but all the tracked bugs uh, are, are resolved right one way or the other. Um, the dialogue's long since been processed. Um, the audio team's done their work, the music's in, like everything's squared away. And the bulk of the team has now moved on to the next thing. The group of people that has to care about the thing after the next thing is, is thankfully a very small group. Um, and yeah, so it is, it is, it can be, it can be somewhat challenging, but thankfully, um, just like any other creative process, right? We do have, a, we do have a process. We've, we've been doing this for a long time now. And, um, I'm very lucky to work with guys like Jeremy and, and Rich and Bill, cause they've done this a whole bunch. Um, so when, uh, when my part of that conversation comes up, they're very directed about sort of what they're looking for from me and, and how I can support them in their role. Cause again, I'm the I'm the bard, right? I'm over here in the corner singing like, "Let me tell you a tale of how the dark elves would care about their ancestors." Let's let's jam, shall we? Right? Like that's my job. Yeah. I just you need voice acting. <laughs> yeah, you could get good voice for it. <laughs> I just imagine a room full of post-it notes whenever uh, when when CNX asked that question of how do you guys keep track of everything. And, um, yeah, uh, I just got to meet Jeremy in San Francisco uh, earlier this hey, year, and he, and he described some of the process. And I was like, "Man, this sounds really uh, complicated with so many yes. teams working like all at the same time on one thing and then the next." It's pretty cool. So, with your permission, we have now several lore questions from the community that they would like, uh, if possible. If you can answer, obviously, oh, you're under that. restrictions and limitations. Right, so a couple of things. First, if it's cool with you, can we time box it to about 15 minutes, if that's all right? Sure, and, sure. You know, um, uh, if, there's, if we want to go a little further, I'd love to cap her out about, you know, two hours. As you can tell, I do have a little bit of allergies, and I, we've been... Yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, of course. It's been an hour and 20 Thank yeah. you, that'd be great. And then the other thing, and I will just I will just state this as a front thing up front. I want to be really clear. One of the reasons I really like the Lore Masters Archive format is it lets me do some of this stuff inside that unreliable narration framework that we mm. talked about, right? Like, character, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Like if Divith or my buddy Azander, if if they make if they make statements that in some like actually it was great because I think Azander said more inflammatory things than Divith did, which is great. Um if Azander says something ridiculous, right? It's not me saying it, it's 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 right, Xander. Right. So I want to preface all of this with I am happy to give you guys some high level viewpoints of me Michael Zinke, the dude, but mm. like, I'm very hesitant to be like, and here's my wizard hat. And now, yeah. and now here's yeah. the unvarnished, the true truth of the Elder Scrolls friend. Cause I'm just like, that's just not the job, right? right. Like, that's not, that's not what I do inside the building. And I, I don't want to present that as what I do for you guys either. So I would love to talk about some specific lore stuff, but let's keep it in that framework. If that's okay. Like we're, we're just sure. yeah, we're having, we're having a conversation. But we do not expect definite answers. Okay. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so the first question is, uh, way back in the base game, in Cold Harbor, there's a lore book in the Library of Dusk. Uh, and within that lore book, it lists a bunch of other lore books that are kept within the library. Oh, sure, yeah. Some of them are just mind-blowing. 
apparently Mole Ball at one point had the blueprints of the Numidium. And then there are letters uh, of correspondence between Alessia and Belharza of um, an apocryphal account of Pelinol Whitestrake conversing with the heart of Lorcan. Is there any chance we will ever see some of these books in game? That's a great question, and I will answer it exactly the same way that we talked about, like, um, the Aedra showing up in the game, right? I think any book that we wrote, right, for some of those books would would not do any justice to what, what you folks have in your head about what the content of that book would be. Now, I think partially, yes, we could, we could do some... In fact, I very specifically, because um, I, I think this was a topic of conversation a while back um, with the Imperial Library folks, and I had this in my head as I was doing some writing for the um, the Zone flavor text um, in the Necron release. And so, like, for example, Apocrypha's um, uh, quote, it's, it's blurb is from Morian Zenis out of his out of his book that we will never write the full scope of. That's an example of where I think excerpts from those books or like little nuggets from those books might find their way out into the book. Cause I, I agree with you. They're like super fascinating, like texts to, to reference. Right. But I don't, I wouldn't think we would ever go out of our way to like, we're going to write out the whole of Morian Zenis's treaties. Right. Mm -hmm. And put it yeah, out yeah. in the world. Cause I, I just don't think it would be, I just don't think it would be as fun as like what we all have in our heads or what that could be. Please do that. That'll be awesome. Possibility of fragments that we'll get. Not the entire. Very cool. Um, um, sorry, what? No, go ahead. Uh, in Vegas, is it true that you were responsible for the naming of the food dishes and the drinks? Because I heard that when yes. we were in Vegas, yes. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. But I just I wanted to ask you, I didn't get to ask you in Vegas if that's true. This is an example of one of the weird things that I do for my job. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the marketing folks are like, hey, we got these like food things. Can you theme? I did have lore blurbs for everyone too. Yeah. I was bummed that like the little cards weren't big enough to put mm. the little lore blurb. Cause I mean, that's, you know, as a writer, I'm always wanting to cram more text right. into a place. Right. But, but yeah, no, it, that was a fun exercise. Um, I literally have the Elder Scrolls cookbook right here. So let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll test you on some of them. <laughs> I love that thing. Well, yeah. th these oh. were these were drinks and foods, uh, I believe. You he named not not from the cookbook. This is yeah, like, Arkansas yeah, domain. Yeah. That was a better drink than the white gold, in my opinion. I don't think I'm. Uh, Arkansas domain was great. Yeah, I um, love the Arkansas domain. One of the fun parts, actually. Let me if I could take this in a slightly serious direction sure, for a second. Sure. Actually, the white the white so the the white gold fashioned mm. was the name of the old fashioned there. And that's a great example of I actually was. Um, when I was looking at the drinks, I was like, I need good names for these. So I threw it out to the writers as a whole, like collaborating with the writing group and and picking their brains and finding interesting like avenues is one of my favorite things because we have a tremendously talented group of writers right. who works on ESO. Mm -hmm. And like again, I'm just I'm just one guy. And so like finding different avenues to look into the lore. We do this all the time about much more serious things than what to what to name a a drink at a, at a fan event but like um that's that's an example of one where i was like hey guys i don't have a good name for the old-fashioned like what help me out here and i think I believe it was um I believe it was julie who uh who pulled that one out because I, I never would have come up with the white gold tower that's that is not a thing that i would have pulled out of my head and i, I just cool. freaking love that so. do, do you do the fish as well because i feel the fish are quite like lore 
as well, yeah. kind of. Yeah, I did. I did all the rest because it's freaking, amazing. Yeah. Um. Oh, so sorry. Go on. No, go on. Go on, please. Oh, so the next question is actually for me, and it is a question I've been asking for since I think 2019. I've been trying to find the answer to this question. Uh, Nafilar calls Jadari Tosh Raka. That's the title he uses for her in the dragon language. And I've been wondering for the longest time, the word Tosh in dragon, is it the same definition as in uh, we see that Lauren Schick gave for Nidic and Aldmeri, as in it means dragon or uh, time within the context? I'm just reading a little bit about what you're talking about here. Um, so from context, that sounds like a good interpretation to me, right? Um, I would very much say um, this is a great example of cool. uh, this is a great example of where like I think the the way that characters interact with each other and, and the life that they they breathe between them, right? Like what I just heard you say, tracks for me i think with the intent behind the line but i am hesitant to be like you know and that's the objective truth of of like tamriel of this experience within the the the, the experience of the the quest right like i think the relationship between those two characters you know you don't need one you don't need one word to sort of suss out what the relationship was like if that if that makes sense as an answer yeah, because the, the dialogue between the Lord nerds is generally means Toshraka. Some like translates into dragon friend or dragon ally. The the Raka part has been very uh, conjecture on our part, but for Tosh is the, what we have through the etymologies. You know, you guys have established that's what we figured out at the very least. Um, let's see. This next question, question is actually. Oh, can I ask? Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Um, okay, no, so in the Divith Fear Lore Masters Archive, there is a very small mention of a city that has not been seen since Arena, uh, Firewatch. And I believe Divith says, outsiders should not go to Firewatch. Is there a reason for that? Does it suck there? <laughs> oh, um, in context there, he was he was being threatening. He was like, oh. you know, don't don't come sniffing around if you don't want to deal with like w one of the things, you know, uh, I just mentioned earlier, right? Like um, the view we sort of had was um, uh, the Silvani house as uh, Silicon Valley startup culture. Well, in that ecology, right? If you imagine sort of a, a tech Valley startup, right? Divith is even worse than any of those other chuckleheads. Cause he's a consultant and consultants oh, <laughs> they get paid through the nose. They can do and say anything. They're the worst. So that's why that's why I, I love the idea of Diveth being the front man to talk for the house mm. is because if he said anything crazy, right, the 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 capital C council, the council proper, could just say like, uh, Diveth doesn't actually. He like works for us. He works with us, but he's like not actually of us, right? So like they could they could parse blame out to him. So that was that was what was in my head when I was like, who should we have right for uh, uh, that, that Lord Master's archive? So, yeah, I love Divith. He's a great, he's a great <laughs> I love him too. And the fact that he's so old, too, like he's been around since yeah. Nerevar's age. Right. Uh, so this next question is from Reddit, uh, TS Lore. Uh, will we see, because we've already been to Adamantia in the very beginning. Uh, you guys added that uh, starter quest zone. Oh, yeah. Uh, will, will we 
visit Adamantia once again? Will it uh, be portrayed within the story? And will we finally get to see the uh, Argent Aperture that's mentioned in the lore book once? The uh, the 13 locking rings that are next to the Zero Stone. Mm, uh, great question. So, to, to make sure I'm understanding the first part of the question, you're talking about the, the, the starter experience where you, you go through the different portals? Uh, yes, Adamantia the Tower. Right, right, right. Yeah, the Adamantia Tower. So, so yeah. you're asking, like, would we ever use that in a different context or, like, a different piece of content other than the starting piece? Yeah, yeah. That's the... I mean, I, you know, I'm never going to say we're never going to do something. Um, that starter is really good, right? And, uh, like, it fits really well with our, like, ever-expanding like framework of op options when you when you first start a character so like if it if doing new content there would require like deprecating or, or removing that as a starting experience i'm gonna say probably not but again I, I, you know i don't know i don't know the future and on this axis i don't know the future anymore better than or worse than you do it's mm -hmm. so like maybe um i certainly don't think that's any that, you know if there was a good reason to use the tower as a setting for a piece of content, I don't think that there's any reason, particular reason why we wouldn't. Um, but I, I, again, like that starter experience is awesome. And so I, I can't imagine us like us taking that out of the game. Yeah. Don't, don't quote <laughs> me on that. That's just, this is just like me thinking out loud. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to the, because of that, then I would guess probably no, like, I don't think anytime soon you, we're going to see the origin aperture, like show up as, as like a, the focus of a piece of content, if that makes sense. All right. We have a, uh, let's see. This we, next again, question like, also. From, I'm sorry. No, we have about five minutes left. I have a super quick question. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Um, is Maroc around? Yes or no? Like, I, sorry, go ahead. So, like, is he? Does did you consider him at all? Like, when writing Apocrypha for Necrom? Mirak. Yeah, Mirak. Oh, okay. you know, oh, sorry, Mirak from Dragonborn. Yeah, okay. Mirak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would say that's okay. Um, look who you're talking to. Like, I don't. I literally, I was like, Mirak, Mirak. Who's he talking? To? <laughs> oh, oh, that, that guy. Okay, okay, great. Um, I'm not gonna give any details, but it is possible there is content in the game that references him in some way. Well, thank you. Okay, um, that's cool. I have a couple questions from audience members. These, these should be quick questions. Um, so, and this is actually before I ask the first question, I have a tangent because I think in San Francisco and Vegas, uh, when I was talking to the devs, they were we. It came up a lot the fact that the tooltips for the Arcanist skills that this was a very heavy uh, collaborative area between writers and the lore team and the combat developers for tooltips um, and this question kind of pertains to that in the scale arcanist domain there are terms mentioned the vigoratum of hermaeus mora the adding madam of morian zenas and the leviath Levi, sorry leviathanum of the abyssal sea tongue twisters here leviathanum uh, uh, what are those terms and how do they relate to the arcanist arcane spell forms are they just books so, so when i was working with the combat team on the the Arcanist tooltips. Um, one of the things that I love is the opportunity to put lore and context and narrative in sort of unexpected places. Um, our 
uh, filters for the class, right, are an, a, a great opportunity to speak to internally, right, mm. what Arcanists think about themselves, what they care about, and what they value, right? Um, in uh, the recent Loremasters archive, Xander speaks a little bit to, there's a throwaway reference in the tooltips to rune knights, and he expands on that as well. So this is a place where I will say I don't want to be spoilery, mm. um, but um, all of the references called out in the Ar Arcanist tooltips are sort of like real, um, whether or not they're well explored in this release or or maybe in a future release. Um, there's content and ideas behind all of them. Um, the Arcanist was a great experience. I wrote like a whole jillion things that have absolutely nothing to do with what we actually shipped. Mm -hmm. um, and so like a lot of those ideas are still in my head or in a doc and um, okay. the, the tooltips and that kind of framing is, was a great chance to like let some of that sort of leak into the, into the zeitgeist of the game. So um, in particular, those three examples are, uh, yeah, sorry. I think, I think I'll, I'll call it good there. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> they're all re it's all real stuff. Um, okay. You just have to go looking for it. Okay. All right, and, so, oh, sorry, one more. Guess, okay. Uh, did Wes Johnson create new lore? Wes Johnson, the voice actor, create new lore when he said that shivering cheese is made from stilt strider milk. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. Um, I, I would say that just like as I, you know, Michael Zanke, I'm just sitting here talking to you guys. I am not the voice for lore. I, you know, right, I, right. I think that applies to everybody, right? Like, we're just out here doing our thing, uh, talking our talk. I love the relationship that Wes has with the characters that he mm. kind of inhabits. He's he's such a passionate dude. It is awesome to watch him do his thing. Um, so yeah, I, I loved all the, man, the stuff from the last couple of weeks. Um, Voice of Palooza, like incredible. Like super, super freaking yeah. fun. So. Um, I, I think, suppose we'll make, go ahead. Sorry, I, I think you have one more question and then Alio has one question and then oh, yeah. I, I think we'll finish up there, yeah. Yeah, this is the last question for me from Reddit also. Um, a user is asking, why are Daedric Shrines absent from the uh, Telvanni Peninsula? Uh, that is a great question. Um, so, the easy answer is... Um, here, I'll answer it this way. Um, the Telvanni are very particular about what face that they present to the world right um one of my favorite things i got to write for this release sorry i wrote a bunch of things for this release i really like but one of the one of my favorite things is they um the actual letter that they sent to the pact the covenant and the dominion where they were like politely screw yourselves um the way that they cultivate their image right in what they show and what they don't show is something I think you should keep in mind as you traverse the peninsula, right? So within Necron proper, within the city, because of the role of the city and the, the fact that the Keepers of the Dead are, are pretty much in control, although if the Telvani had a problem with what the Keepers were doing, like I feel like there would be conflict there. Um, but in the rest of the, the region and the rest of the zone, the Telvani have been very... 
cautious about how they present themselves to to people visiting. So the way I would frame this is you need to look carefully to try to find sort of the substrate um, stuff going on, right? Like, I don't, you know, the fact that there aren't like really obvious, you know, um, shrines to the to the four corners or whatever, right? Like, that's absolutely true. That is a that is a true thing. To say that there's no Daedric shrines at all, or that there's no Daedric worship at all, I I'm not sure that that's accurate. So I would like try to look beneath the surface a little bit. But they're just very subtle about it. Okay, yeah, Ollie. Um, and then I guess just finally, I've, obviously it's been a fascinating conversation and um, it's definitely sort of piqued my interest in it, but coming from a person that's never been super invested in, in the law and, and read too much about it, how would you explain to someone who knows nothing about the Elder Scrolls lore or universe, someone coming to it brand new, what's it all about? What would be, your, like, I don't know, your like movie pitch for why should people be interested in, in Elder Scrolls Online? Absolutely. Where do they start? <laughs> you should be interested in the Elder Scrolls as uh, as lore as IP, because it's like the real world only more so. Everything mm -hmm. that you you know and understand from like real life culture and politics and the challenges that we've lived as a as a species for the last you know on and off two thousand three thousand years, right? Like that's there in Tamriel, only more so with dragons. Um, and, uh, it's like history, but with dragons, that's my pitch. Um, yeah. I genuinely think that like the, let's take Dark Elves as an example, right? Cause they're coming up in Necrom. Dark Elves are like, um, this like portable story unit in a bunch of different fantasy spaces. Right. But generally speaking, they end up being sort of like, they have a bunch of traits that follow them from like place to place. Um, stemming back to sort of their origin point, you, they usually really like spiders, as an example, right? Dark Elves love spiders. In Tamriel, everything's super specific. So even if, like, you've watched Lord of the Rings, say, right? You think you know about dwarves, like, you have a vague understanding of what elves are about, right? Like, Tamriel's gonna surprise you, because, man, do we have a bunch of stuff that's, like, never gonna be mentioned from by Tolkien. Like, it's, a it's from a bunch of, like, very different, very creative minds, that have, you know, built on and, and reference a lot of the, the work that's come before them. But the world that we inhabit when we play Elder Scrolls Online, the place that we're in when we're in Tamriel, is a very different, weirder, more complicated, I think more interesting place than some of the other depictions you're going to see of sort of mm. fantasy, gen generic fantasy tropes. That's my pitch. That's a great pitch. All right. When's the movie coming out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, the cinematic trailers, though, they could make a movie. Yeah, you know? It could be. Yeah. Blur is very good at their jobs. Yeah. So good. This wasn't even Blur this last time. This oh, really? Blur. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Really, wow. really good. All right. And I guess we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for answering these questions and taking the time out of your day. I know it's really soon and then you're probably busy. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much. You guys have been great. Uh, I hope folks enjoy playing. I mean, it's next week, right? Like, oh, I hope yeah. people yeah. enjoy mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what people think. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And hopefully. Thanks for talking. Nice talking to you, everybody. Thanks, yeah, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.